I always wonder if I'm up to date on the current management of pediatric solid tumors. And so in this audio chapter, Dr. Peter Ehrlich from the University of Michigan goes over everything we need to know on the current management of Wilms tumor. I want to thank Dr. Abdul Rauf Lamoshi for editing this audio chapter. Stay Current is a multimedia publication designed to keep healthcare professionals up to date with standards of care and new emerging ideas. This chapter is created and edited by Todd Ponsky, Ian Glenn, Sophia Abdulhai, and Abdul Rauf Lamoshi, and is recorded and produced at Akron Children's Hospital in Akron, Ohio. This is Todd Ponsky from Akron Children's Hospital, and today with Stay Current, we're going to be talking about Wilms tumor. This is certainly something that uh, I find to be ever-changing, and with us today we have a great expert who definitely knows the field, uh, Dr. Peter Ehrlich, who is Professor of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Michigan C.S. Mott Children's Hospital, and he's also Vice Chair of Surgery in the Renal Tumor Section of the Children's Oncology Group, and he's going to help us sort of sift through what we need to know about Wilms tumor. Peter, thanks for joining us today. Great. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's dig right in and uh, give you sort of the typical case that we get. So, Peter, let's say a three-year-old boy presents with a uh, left abdominal mass. He gets a CAT scan, which shows a left renal mass. Tell me how you approach this patient. What is your differential diagnosis? And then let's talk about what kind of tests you might get. Sure. So the first thing that I would think of uh, looking at the CT scan is uh, the characteristics of the mass. Is it a large mass of a kidney because there's a benign or a blockage somewhere down along the way and the child has uh, a benign lesion like hydronephrosis or maybe an underlying um, process of uh, congenital duplication of the the kidney that makes it look larger or does it just a simple renal cyst. Those are the common, uh, more common benign uh, lesions. And then uh, I start to think about the differential uh, diagnosis of children with more neoplastic lesions, uh, one of them being Wilms tumor, another one being a clear cell sarcoma of the kidney or rhabdoid tumor of the kidney, um, or it could be, depending on the age or any congenital problems, a uh, renal cell carcinoma or some of the rare uh, tumors like AMLs or, or sarcomas. And depending on the age of the of the child, in, in this case, he's a little old for it, but if we're younger, it could be a, a mesoblastic nephroma. I will also look uh, for things, is it completely solid, is it cystic? Uh, and, and those things would point uh, uh, potentially to things like uh, a cystic nephroma or if it's solid, uh, most commonly, it, it, it's at this age is going to be a nephroblastoma or a Wilms tumor. Okay, so what is it on the CAT scan that might look more like uh, a Wilms tumor? 
So, so Wilms tumors tend to uh, – oh, Todd, I forgot to also mention that one of the differentials could be a, a neuroblastoma, uh, which I forgot to mention, uh, or a metastatic tumor uh, such as lymphoma to the kidney. The features on the CAT scan that make it look like a Wilms tumor, it, it's the classic feature is something called a claw sign, where you have the kidney, the normal kidney, being displaced into a horseshoe pattern and fitting inside that horseshoe pattern is a tumor. And so it looks like the normal kidney is grabbing the uh, mass that's coming out of it. it uh, Wilms tumor also tends to push things out of the way rather than growing into it, whereas a neuroblastoma, you look for things that would tend to grow out and around structures like blood vessels. Wilms tumor tends to push things out of the way. Uh, it may even look radiographically like it, ha it has a, a capsule uh, and is quite distinct features, whereas other tumors are less so uh, distinct. You may even see some uh, calcifications on it, but they're not specific per se to Wilms tumor. Okay, so let's say you've got the CAT scan. It has the classic claw sign. Now what do you do? So the next thing that you would want to do is start to think about what other imaging studies you would need for a patient who has a, a renal tumor where you're thinking most likely a Wilms tumor and also some routine lab work that may help you make some decisions uh, about how you would approach the kidney. So the other uh, imaging studies that you would want to obtain would be scan or imaging cross-section limit of the lung where a, a CAT scan is the best. The current versions of CAT scans will also be able to tell you quite nicely the assessment of the uh, vasculature because Wilms tumors, they spread uh, sometimes by growing out of the kidney and into the renal vein and the IBC. CAT scans are very good at that. Some people will prefer to get a Doppler ultrasound of the kidney uh, as a secondary study. Then routine lab work, uh, including including uh, CBC coagulation, PT, PTT, and some basic uh, renal studies such as ferritin, electrolytes, et cetera. Okay, so let's say you get all that work up and mm -hmm. the lab work comes back normal mm -hmm. and uh, you don't see any evidence of vascular invasion mm -hmm. and there does not appear to be any lung lesions or any other metastases. Mm -hmm. Now what? So in North America, uh, we uh, uh, believe and prefer that the next step in the treatment of children with renal tumors is to go ahead and perform surgery. The, that surgery is called total nephrectomy uh, and uterectomy, taking part of the ureter down to the level of the bladder and uh, doing lymph node sampling in the regions that drain the kidney. That is our recommendation for the majority of, of tumors uh, that present in, in children. There are uh, exceptions uh, to that. Uh, sometimes these tumors can be exceedingly large uh, in, in such a way that it compromises the respiratory status of the child and that the child may uh, uh, not make a good operative candidate. In that situation, we would recommend a biopsy and then giving pre-surgical chemotherapy. 
other situations uh, that would where we would recommend uh, doing chemotherapy up front uh, based on the children's oncology group uh, philosophy would be if the tumor extended into the inferior vena cava and beyond the infrahepatic uh, vena cava. So if the tumor went up and started to, to go behind the liver of the vena cava or up to the atrium, uh, that that would, uh, tumor most likely would benefit from undergoing preoperative chemotherapy. Some of these tumors are, are just massive and fill the whole abdomen at, at where you are worried about uh, having to take out other organs or uh, doing resections of large parts of the liver or the bowel. Again, uh, those aren't warranted if the tumor is that large because majority of them will respond to some degree uh, to chemotherapy. And then finally, if it turns out that the child only has one functioning kidney, uh, we, we uh, don't want to take that kidney out uh, and we would try and um, give them preoperative chemotherapy. Other situations that we would do that if there happen to be tumors in both kidneys, we would not do a primary kidney tumor. Or if a child had a certain genetic or predisposition to developing uh, a tumor in the other side, in those situations, we would take a different approach. Some examples of that include children with Wegar syndrome, Denny Drass syndrome, back with Weidman syndrome or children who have tumors in multiple positions throughout the kidney, uh, multicentric tumors. Okay. So what you just said was so critical and probably the most important thing about what we're going to talk about. So I want to make sure I got it right. right. Um, okay. So, and, and, and actually you alluded to something. And so I'm just going to uh, mention that. So Peter, probably more than half of the people, uh, that subscribe to Stay Current are are not from the United States. Okay. So it's interesting that probably half of the people listening will do something different. Okay. I know that there are different protocols for COG in the United mm -hmm. States and PSYOP uh, in Europe. So uh, you're going to go into more detail about that in a minute, but I want you first in North America that okay. in, a, in an isolated Wilms tumor looking uh, on the CAT scan, you're going to do go straight for resection if there's no right. invasion. Okay, so if it goes ab above the infrahepatic cava, cava then yeah. you would not do a primary resection. Consider yeah. not doing a primary resection. And in that patient, would you do a biopsy or just start chemotherapy? We would do a biopsy. Okay. Avi has a question. So, Peter, I was wondering um, if preoperative imaging seems to indicate that it's invading a, a small section of intestine, would that change your management at all? Which way would it sway you? So, in general, if you think that you have to take out part of the colon, which is usually the part that it's invaded, in that situation, I would biopsy the patient because we do know, first of all, that you probably will respond. And secondly, the complication rates have been shown to be higher if you have to take out liver or bowel at the same time of taking out the kidney. So there's no reason to do that. And uh, and overall, the consequence in that case of uh, of upstaging, where does that well, lead? Well, so it's not really upstaging. It's so this goes to the question of there are different types of staging uh, systems that people use depending on whether you do 
pre-nephrectomy uh, chemotherapy or whether you do a primary nephrectomy and then treat, uh, or difference between the children's oncology group staging and the uh, PSYOP or base protocols, which also includes the UK and, and some other countries. And if we leave gross tumor behind or just biopsy, it has always been and is continued, we've always felt that this should be treated as a stage three abdominal tumor, and those tumors will get three drug chemotherapy plus flank radiation. Uh, now, if you feel that the tumor has invaded into the to such an extent that you'd have to do a major liver resection or a bowel resection, then that's going to be a stage three tumor anyways. What you're really doing in that situation is say, I don't want to it's not valuable to take out the descending left colon or ascending right colon or do a right uh, hepatectomy because we know that if we give chemotherapy, those will almost always respond and you're not going to change things. So that's how I look at it. Now, if you just often Wilms tumors will push up to the liver and some people will take a little rim of that just to make sure they have a clear margin, that's completely different. So, again, I want to go back to these this list you gave. The first thing, uh, one of the things you want to make sure of when you look at the CAT scan is that there's no other lesions in the other kidney. Uh, and once you're satisfied that, the second thing that you want to look at is whether the tumor in the abdomen has extended anywhere. Is the disease in the liver, has the Wilms tumor itself extended out through the uh, renal vein and into the inferior vena cava and to the extent of that? And then you want to get cross-sectional imaging of the chest because those things, uh, that will help with the what's called the final stage of the disease. At that point in time, there are two prevailing treatment strategies. The first treatment strategy, the children's oncology group, primarily a North American uh, strategy, has been to, if the tumor uh, is resectable, that we would do uh, nephro-uterectomy with lymph node sampling. In the children's oncology group strategy, the criteria that we use for patients who are, uh, we would not recommend that for include the following. One, a tumor that is so big that it impairs the child's respiratory status and that they're not a good surgical candidate. Second, if you look and you find out there's only one kidney or that there's only uh, a, there's only one functioning kidney because the other kidney had some underlying congenital problem, again, we would not recommend doing that up front to do that. The third is if the tumor extends out the renal vein and beyond the infrahepatic vena cava, that there is a higher risk of complications. Uh, four, if you feel that you would have to do a major liver or bowel resection at the same time, that is a situation in which we would not recommend doing a primary nephrectomy. And five, if you feel the tumor just based on the size would be so difficult, and generally the size, the evidence suggests that your tumor, you get into trouble when tumors start to get to between uh, 13, 14, and 15 centimeters or bigger, that there is a higher risk of rupture that you might want to consider not doing a primary nephrectomy. What about crossing midline? Is that playing So role? those tumors tend to fall into that. 
Yeah. Some, in some of those larger tumors, they are very mobile, and it's actually an easy resection. In other tumors, they are very fixed, and you might not want to do it. It's really a judgment call, and sometimes you make the judgment at the time when you do an operation and you uh, feel around and see how mobile the tumor are. But that is uh, a judgment call that the surgeon will have to make. The evidence suggests that you should be more cautious as you get somewhere around 13, 14, 15 centimeters uh, with the tumor size, and all of those will cross the abdomen in children. And is it fair to say that in those, and I'm trying to remember if one of the ones you mentioned was that they had a lung lesion? On, no, uh, I did not. Okay. So let's take the ones that you said. Um, right. you're, is it fair to say that for all of those, you would proceed with a biopsy of yes. the lesion? Okay. Yes. We proceed with the biopsy because um, there's really uh, uh, no way of knowing exactly what type of, of tumor uh, you're dealing with without the pathology, and the pathology really directs the 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 treatment. For example, although majority of them will be Wilms tumor. Their Wilms tumor has two groups, one of what's called unfavorable anaplastic histology. The other one is favorable histology. The chemotherapy uh, is different for each one, and the prognosis is significantly different for each one. There's also something called a rhabdoid tumor of the kidney, which has a very different prognosis and also has very different uh, chemotherapy, and clear cell sarcoma of the kidney. All of those uh, 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 would be very different. And uh, while it, you can get a better idea whether it's a malignant tumor versus one of the non-malignant types, there is no imaging study available that will be able to tell you the difference between a rhabdoid tumor and clear cell sarcoma and a Wilms tumor, or even if, whether it's favorable or non-favorable histology. So we think that biopsying and getting uh, uh, it is very important. And tell me um, how you would do your biopsy. So there are really two options. We have for a long time recommended that you do a uh, open biopsy to get a large section of tissue versus needle or other biopsies. Recent interventional technology with large core sampling has in several series proven to be uh, accurate. It hasn't been tested, but a lot of people are doing that. Um, one of the things that we would recommend that whatever approach that they use, if they do an open, that they place the uh, central venous catheter or port at the same time to avoid multiple anesthetics, and if they're going to do a core one, that they take at least 10 cores, and the data suggests that between 10 and 20, you increase the accuracy. We would not suggest doing fine needle aspiration or just doing a simple pass of a, of a true cut needle biopsy, as they you cannot uh, diagnose uh, uh, anaplasia based on those biopsies. And in fact, in uh, if you're not sure that it's a Wilms tumor or something called a rest, you can't diagnose those based on those core biopsies. That's great. So putting in a port or a Broviac at the time of biopsy, is there any possibility that a biopsy would come back of something that you wouldn't end up needing chemotherapy? 
it's always possible. Uh, some of the children under six months of age, may it may come back as being a benign lesion, but it's unlikely itself would be those lesions, mesoblastic nephromas, never get to the size, never extend out through the inferior vena cava or where it would change it. So it'd be be an exceedingly rare event uh, that that would happen if you had made the decision to do a biopsy at that stage. And it's pretty much okay to put in a single lumen at this point. They're not going to need a double lumen, right? No. Most uh, chemotherapy protocols, it's it's a single lumen port is preferred because of infection risks. However, in the younger kids, as we know, we don't have small enough ports, so it's a single lumen Broviac-like catheter. So can you go over the staging of Wilms tumor? I know that sure. you talk about disease stage and abdominal stage. Can you go over that with us? Sure. So in the children's oncology group staging system, uh, we treatment is determined based on two factors. One is called the local abdominal stage, and the second is the disease stage. Stage one is the tumor that is uh, limited to the kidney. It's completely resected. There is no invasion through the renal capture. The tumor was not ruptured or biopsied prior to to removal, and the vessels of the renal sinus are, are not involved. There's no evidence of tumor beyond the margins of resection, and the regional lymph nodes are negative. Stage two is the tumor is completely uh, resected, and there's no evidence of tumor beyond the margins, but the tumor can extend beyond the kidney in a few. There can be regional extension of the tumor, such as penetration of the renal capsule or invasion of the soft tissue of the renal sinus. Blood vessels within the nephrectomy specimen that are kind of outside of the primary kidney, if they contain tumor cells, that is considered uh, stage two. Stage three is uh, when the tumor it comes is either biopsied and there's gross tumor remaining, that there are lymph nodes that are positive within the tumor. The tumor has penetrated through the peritoneal surface um, where you find tumor implants, where you have um, positive margins on the tumor or that there's microscopic residual either from an intraoperative spill, okay, or you couldn't completely resect the tumor as tumor is considered stage three. Or if the patient was biopsied, got chemotherapy, that is considered stage three. Or if to get the tumor out, you have to take it out in pieces. Or, for example, if the tumor extended into the renal vein and you divided the renal vein with tumor, that is also considered stage three. Stage four for a tumor is um, uh, considered when you have hematogenous metastasis to the lung or liver, which are the two most common places, or bone or brain. And then stage five is bilateral renal tumor involvement. So what are all these stages and how do you put it together in treatment? Well, for example, you could have a tumor that is in the abdomen as stage one, but the patient would then could have a lung lesion. And uh, that is uh, not uncommon, particularly stage two tumors. And that would mean that the child would get different chemotherapy. And if it was stage one in the abdomen, the child would not get abdominal radiation. 
Whereas if the child had a stage three tumor in the abdomen and lung metastasis, the child would get chemotherapy plus abdominal radiation and then in some instances may require lung radiation also. So every stage is going to get chemotherapy. It's just a matter of what chemotherapy they get. Is that right? Well, so if a patient is stage two in the abdomen or stage one in the abdomen and they are uh, do not have any disease in the lungs, those patients only get two-drug chemotherapy. They okay. get it for a shorter duration. The chemotherapy is not as toxic, and the risk of late effects is significantly lower than adding the third drug, which is doxorubicin, and, or adding the abdominal radiation. When you look at the late effects, and by late effects, the, the main ones are renal failure. Um, you're looking at development of second malignancies, and you look at or problems with and for the females in pregnancy or hypertension, cardiovascular disease, the two main factors that contribute to that are radiation and doxorubicin, which are the two main drugs. So there's a big difference between using those and doing it. So if a child has stage one or two in the abdomen, they would not require abdominal radiation. And that's a really good long-term thing to avoid. So if you said one of the things that is somewhat confusing to both the oncologist and the surgeon is just because they have a lung lesion doesn't mean that you shouldn't take out the primary tumor. And uh, so if you have a lung lesion and a five centimeter tumor and you biopsy that tumor, that in the children's oncology group treatment uh, paradigm would mean that the child would automatically be considered a stage three because of residual gross tumor. And you would, the child would get the three-drug chemotherapy, but would also get abdominal radiation. And if you had gone ahead and removed the tumor, the child and the lymph nodes were negative, you would not necessarily have gotten abdominal radiation. That's a great point. And so now that we understand that, that the abdomen is separate from METS and the treatment, abdominal treatment could be not necessarily require the radiation, tell me then what you do preoperatively in a patient that has what looks like to be, even though you don't know because you haven't done surgery yet, but it looks like to be a probable stage one with a, or a stage two with a lung lesion. How do you proceed with that patient? My approach to that patient is I take out the renal tumor and I leave the, the lung lesion alone. Um, there's two reasons to, that I do that. Uh, uh, one is that you want to know what the pathology is. So if it's favorable histology Wilms tumor, and it, I do my lymph node sampling. Lymph nodes are negative at stage one or stage two. This child avoids abdominal radiation. The second thing that is important that the Children's Oncology Group recently finished a, a trial to see if all kids needed pulmonary radiation. Pulmonary radiation has been the gold standard for treatment for pulmonary disease, and it's very effective. The problem is is that of its late effects, and 15% of the girls who get pulmonary radiation from Wilms tumor end up getting breast cancer, which is significant. There's also problems with pneumonitis, long-term restrictive lung disease. Based on 
some PSYOP data and some children's oncology group data that suggested that there is a section, a group of patients who respond very quickly by six weeks to chemotherapy, and those patients may not need pulmonary radiation. So a recent study, the children's oncology group addressed that, where children who had pulmonary disease underwent six weeks of chemotherapy and got a repeat CT scan. And then those that were complete responders, and there was about 40% of the patients, they were not given pulmonary radiation. And looking at that group, and at this point in time, looking at relapses, there was about 80% to 85% that did not relapse. So those kids completely avoided pulmonary radiation and the toxicity without any effect on either their event-free or overall survival. The people that did recur, all but one of them have survived, and uh, they did get pulmonary radiation. The one patient who did not survive actually died of a non-oncologic uh, cause of death. So just to clarify then, you have the patient, you go in, you've done your nephrectomy, they have mm-hmm. a lung lesion, you're just going to start chemotherapy based on the pathology from the kidney tumor, you're not even going to get tissue from the lung lesion. No, there's no reason in, at this point in time in the primary due to get lung tissue. Now, there are situations where you might want to consider doing a lung tissue biopsy at the six-week evaluation. So again, in North America, what we do is we would uh, treat and see about the response. Now, if you happen to have a lesion that was there and did not respond to chemotherapy or a single lesion left that you're not sure what the etiology of, then it would be reasonable to go in and do a thoracoscopic biopsy because about 50 to 60% of the time, those lesions may not turn out to be uh, cancer. They could be scar. Uh, they could be a variety of things. And in those situations, that, those patients would not need pulmonary radiation. If you had the this patient, again, with the lung lesion, you do your nephrectomy, and it comes back as favorable histology, stage 1, Wilms tumor, and they have a lesion in the lung, do you give them two-drug chemo? So if I was convinced... Uh, assuming that the lesion in the lung was a malignant lesion, okay? Now, if you're at all uncertain about that, then you would resect that lesion to find out. But, but how, could you ever, how can you ever be certain without resecting it? Well, the radiologists have criteria that they use, and they're they're pretty comfortable at deciding it. Uh, and if, if I was said, hey, I'm, we're not really sure, this is a, a, you know, a one-centimeter lesion that looks more like a scar, I would definitely resect it because that would change things right. with the chemotherapy. But those situations are not that common, okay. but they're, they're something that you should do. But routinely, if you have like a, a one centimeter lesion in the you know upper lobe that's peripheral, that's classic for a metastatic lesion, then there's no reason to biopsy it. And now if you are treating the lung lesion and you're treating as soon as metastatic disease, you would start with three drug chemotherapy and all patients with lung lesions to do that uh, from that standpoint. So, Peter, we've been talking about COG. Can you tell me where PSYOP is different? 
Sure. So the PSYOP protocols and those uh, the countries, and those are man- mainly Western European countries, have taken a different approach to patients with Wilms tumor where they will start with uh, chemotherapy. All patients, they don't go to operation. In some situations, the majority of them, they don't biopsy it, but they will give two drug chemotherapy in very different doses. Okay, that is, they use a lot higher doses of the two common drugs that we use. And uh, then they will give, uh, evaluate the patient at four and eight weeks looking for a response. And after the induct, and then go on to chemotherapy, then go on to resection. Based on, they do the same operation, then based on the pathology and the NOLA status afterwards, they have a post-chemotherapy, post-nephrectomy classification that goes into patients that are low-risk, intermediate-risk, and high-risk patients. So, Peter, what are their criteria for, uh, for abdominal uh, radiation? Sure. So they give abdominal radiation to their high-risk patients who are, whether they're lymph node positive or negative, they're intermediate risk patients who are lymph node positive. So their low-risk patients are patients who have a complete necrosis. Their intermediate risk patients are uh, for Wilms tumor are patient is based on the percentage of what is called blastemal uh, uh, components. And their high-risk patients are, if their blastema component, what is uh, called a predominantly blastema, or if they're anaplasia. And in that situation, they, if they're high-risk patients, they get three drug or possibly more drugs in chemotherapy plus abdominal radiation. In the patients who are low risk, they only get two drug chemotherapy. Intermediate risk, uh, it's a moving target sometimes. Uh, just don't know what drugs they give particularly. Okay. But if, if we go into uh, in the COG protocols, and if we look at the patients that are uh, all in stage three, are there any differences between a patient who underwent empiric biopsy versus an outcomes difference in a patient who ended up getting spillage in the operating room when trying to undergo a complete nephrectomy? No, no, there's there's no difference. One of the things that there is, there's no difference in that group. The main factor that predicts outcome in, in stage three is whether they're lymph node positive or not. That's one of, and then we whether they have certain genetic changes that we've validated prospectively called loss of heterozygosity and a genetic change that we've validated on retrospective data that's called 1Q gain. So... What you're saying basically also is that if you're looking at a CAT scan preoperatively and it's unclear um, whether this tumor is completely resectable, then technically giving it a try or, or, or attempting a resection wouldn't relegate the patient to a poor prognosis if a bailout had to be performed and only and, and no. stay with a no. biopsy. No, no, not at all. And I think it's reasonable to think of it about it in that way. If you uh, sometimes you just can't tell, or you go in and you find out that uh, the tumor is fixed and the, the the you'd have to do a major bowel resection, then uh, backing out is reasonable. Our European colleagues might say, well, why are you doing that? Why don't you just treat them? Because their majority are going to respond to some degree, and that's also a reasonable. When uh, when you look at the outcomes for stage one and stage two patients between the children's oncology group and the uh, PSYOP uh, groups, they're basically identical. 
let's say uh, going back to this patient that has uh, what looks like a resectable Wilms tumor with no uh, reasons to, to biopsy, but actually looks like a good resective candidate. Talk to me about how you prepare the patient for surgery. What do you tell the parents? And then talk about technical pearls and potential pitfalls during this procedure. Sure. So my preparation for the kid includes under you know making sure that I have um, I know the the lab work going in to make sure that nothing's out of whack. Uh, the things I do is make sure I know what the hemoglobin is. Uh, some of these patients uh, present because the tumor ruptures inside itself and they are start with a low hemoglobin. In very rare cases, they can be bleeding as the case uh, starts, but those are, are pretty rare. Uh, to do that. I also will want to know the uh, COAG status, uh, particularly the PT and PTT. Uh, There is something called acquired von Willebrand's disease, uh, which these patients get. In the majority of cases, it is meaningless, but there have been reports in uh, a few case series where these patients may bleed a lot uh, during surgery until the tumor is out, and in one or two cases, uh, that has been significant, and some people have recently suggested that a bleeding time should be obtained on all patients uh, with Wilms tumor. The majority of us are not convinced of the value of that, but it's something that we should look at and uh, uh, patient uh, surgeons should be aware of and to do that. And then just routine electrolytes. I then, uh, I don't routinely bowel prep the patients uh, unless I have a particular concern about that. And then I will uh, talk with the family. In general, I, I talk with the family, uh, with the oncologist, uh, talking to them about what we're going to do in, during the operation in terms of taking out the kidney, uh, taking out the ureter, and then taking uh, lymph nodes. I I will talk to them about the presence or absence of what the imaging has told us about vascular extension. And then I will talk to them about, you know, complications based on the location and size of the tumor from, uh, you know, routine things like infections and postoperative fevers uh, to areas where you have to be a little careful about right-sided tumors. Uh, can sometimes, uh, the adrenal uh, vein can cause problems or they can be quite close to the duodenum and you have to be careful. So, uh, there's been duodenal injuries reported. There's been uh, superior mesenteric artery uh, injuries that because everything is distorted uh, uh, to do that. Particularly, right-sided tumors can sometimes distort the IVC. And uh, the, the you know what I think about, I make sure that the IVC is clear, and that uh, so I tell the family about potential IVC injuries. So once you're in the operating room, how do you position the patient and how do you make your incision? So I, I typically position the patient as slightly elevated on the side of the tumor. I tend to either make a, a kind of modified subcostal incision or a transverse incision depending on the age and the shape of the child uh, going to the midline. To do that, I don't make a paramedian incision and I don't make a, a retroperitoneal incision that they might use uh, routinely in adults to do that, but I make a transverse Versus abdominal-like incision uh, over where I feel the the hyaline may be, uh, tend to make it more subcostal on the right side and less so on the left. And then upon entering the abdomen, uh, you look around and make sure that there's no other, there's no peritoneal seating. I will look at the liver to make sure the liver doesn't have anything. And if I can, 
easily do it. I may palpate uh, the IVC or renal, the appropriate renal vein uh, to feel for tumor, and that uh, itself is uh, often can be difficult. These tumors tend to be large, and although ideally you would like to identify the renal artery and the renal vein, it's been well recognized. It's even back in Gross's book that these, uh, if you can't do that, then uh, you shouldn't try and do it up front. Um, it, then I'll start by uh, mobilizing everything off the kidney and then mobilizing the kidney, either starting at the inferior or superior pool, and slowly uh, go around the kidney until I get it on a pedicle. Uh, once I've identified the ureter, I will put a vessel loop on it, and I will follow the ureter down as far as I can to where it kind of goes into the bladder, and uh, I may divide it, and then I will identify the vasculature within the Asylum, uh, getting around the the main renal artery and the main renal vein. Once I've identified the main renal artery and the kidney is uh, usually pretty mobile at that time, I'll divide those structures. And uh, usually at that point in time, the tumor can come out. If it's easy, I will take adrenal off the uh, superior pole of the kidney, but it's not necessary. There's really been no reports of adrenal insufficiency and in presence or absence of tumor in the adrenal vein has no correlation with, with outcomes. Um, sometimes there can be, sometimes there can't be, depending on the specimen to do that. So, And then once the tumor is out, I then will look in the renal hilum, uh, para-aortically or paracavally for uh, lymph nodes, and I will uh, try and sample. I, I will sample, uh, you know, at least try and sample at least five or six. At this point in time, we don't have any evidence that that makes a difference, but there's some secondary evidence to suggest that uh, those uh, that number, um, more than one, may be better. Okay. And does it make a difference if you get the artery or the vein first? You just take what it well, gives you. In general, it, it has not made a difference. By principles, it's always better to get the artery first. It's not always possible. Uh, some of these tumors are, are quite big, and if you you may get yourself in trouble to do that. They, often the artery sits below a large vein, so it can be difficult uh, to do that. So I, I take what it what it comes to me. If I can see the artery first, I will do divide the artery first. But it doesn't always happen that way. Okay, and then do you need to place metal clips? So we used to recommend that. We still do to some degree with the good imaging available. The, the radiation oncologists don't find that to be as helpful, but I generally will put a few clips on superiorly uh, and inferiorly for the radiation oncologist, but it's not as important in their, in their treatment uh, marking because the 3D volumetric CD scans, uh, they're able to match up in the patient. Okay, so let's say you've uh, resected the tumor and uh, and it goes to histology. What are the significance of surgical margins in these patients? So the surgical margin will tell you whether the patient is a stage two or stage three. So or well, if the surgical margins are positive, that automatically means the patient is a stage three. Now, sometimes the tumor can extend and kind of microscopically rupture and you can't tell that until they look under the microscope and there's nothing you can do about it. That's a stage three tumor. There's very good data to support that from both our North American studies and PSYOP studies to do that. 
if uh, sometimes you come across and you say, oh, this tumor ruptured, that makes a difference. Other times you come across and uh, the tumors are very soft and you handle it and it ruptures and, and you, there's just nothing you can do about it. If the margins are, are negative, then that uh, means the patient could be a stage one or stage two if it met the, all the pathological criteria for that. Has there ever been any role for frozen section uh, for this evaluation or once you've already cut through theoretically so if you've divided the tumor by accident, uh, you, that automatically makes you a stage uh, three. There are a few technical points. Uh, sometimes these tumors, it's not unusual that they get they cause a lot of reaction and become very adherent to the diaphragm. And taking a piece of diaphragm so that you don't violate the tumor is recommended and will not. In that case, if the, the you haven't divided the tumor, that will not upstage your tumor. Sometimes the tumors well uh, they tend to come up to and and then directly get attached to the liver but there's it's not really an invasion it's an inflammatory action so taking a part of the liver particularly the right or left lobe just a tiny uh, bit uh, is done to preserve to make sure that you don't accidentally get into the tumor and the majority of those cases the tumor hasn't extended it's just that in some cases these tumors cause a, an intense inflammatory reaction that uh, makes it seem like it's invaded but it actually hasn't and other times it has invaded and, and you, you deal with that. Peter, is there any patient that can be treated with surgery alone? Yes. This is uh, something that's sort of unique to the Children's Oncology Group and really was based on observations by Dr. Bob Schamberger based on the a review of kids from the uh, the predecessor to the Children's Oncology Group, which is the National Wilms Tumor Study Group, and they ran five studies, and the first four looked at a variety of different questions. But it was noted that there was a group of patients that were, no matter what you did, whether you treated them with surgery, whether you added one drug of chemotherapy, two drugs of chemotherapy, three drugs, radiation, that they had excellent overall survival. And these patients... They were originally treated with just surgery, and no matter what else they did, they couldn't improve. And their survival, overall survival, was greater than 95%. And the characteristics of these patients at the time were patients who had tumors that were less than 550 grams, that they were stage 1 uh, tumors, and that the child happened to be less than 2. They had unfavorable histology. So based on that, there was a small series of 10 patients that were treated that way that had excellent overall survival. And then two studies that were done, one on NWTS study five and one on the recent children's oncology group that looked and validated that these children, about 90, 95% of them can be treated without chemotherapy. Now, what is the value of that? Well, the uh, chemo complications from chemotherapy, particularly in these younger patients, tend to be more severe. And then there's the late effects of, of chemotherapy that can do that. And it turns out that if they, these kids met this criteria, that about 90% uh, of them can avoid any chemotherapy. And those that do relapse, we have 100% survival in them.
we've done some secondary aim studies, look at some of the biological predictors, because what if the child is two years and one day, or what if the child is, is 556 grams? Are there any features that uh, would make them okay not to have uh, be treated by chemotherapy alone? Or are there any in the in the 10% or so that relapse? Are there any common features, uh, biological markers that hey maybe these are kids that should get chemotherapy to improve their survival? I want to talk about cable extension for a little bit. Okay. So let's first take the situation that the patient had infrahepatic cable extension. So you went to do upfront surgery. Tell me your strategies on how you resect that cable extension. When you look at the outcomes of patients with tumor that extends into the cava or even up to the atrium, that's not a negative prognostic factor. Okay, and if you're looking purely at oncologic outcomes, if you have loss of heterozygosity or anaplastic histology or rhabdoid tumor, those are much worse than cable extension. And in fact, in, in many instances, if it extends into the renal vein, it's not adherent to anything. And if it comes out kind of in one piece, uh, it's considered stage two. So when I go in and when I think about it, a tumor like this, I will come in and I will assess the extent of the um, tumor extension. And I, if I'm concerned I w- and can't 100% palpate things, I will use intraoperative ultrasound. And then I will assess how far it goes up. And if I can get proximal and distal control of the cava safely to get it out. Ideally, what is described is that you mobilize the, the kidney completely, tie off the renal artery and any accessory veins, and then slide, make a small nick in the renal vein and slide the whole tumor and thrombus out in one piece. In reality, it doesn't always come as easy as that, and uh, you sometimes have to open or put a side clamp on the the cava and open the cava to make sure that you get it all out uh, at that time. When it starts to get above that, what's really been shown is that the major complication rate in patients goes up. Uh, Those include mortalities, number of blood transfusions, ICU stay, complications go up. And it's been shown that if in those cases, if I say, hey, this tumor goes up to the atrium or goes up to the hepatic veins, and in my belief, even it's short, if it goes above the infrahepatic cava, that I think that it's a better part of valor is to treat it with upfront with preoperative chemotherapy. Now, that the kidney will almost always respond to some degree. The tumor itself doesn't always completely go away uh, in those situations. In a lot of situations, it'll shrink, and in some, uh, not in significant amount, it will completely uh, disappear. But you still may end up in a situation where you may need to have bypass or vascular occlusion to get out uh, the tumor. Uh, there have been some who claim that after chemotherapy, the tumor thrombus is oftentimes even harder to resect because of the reaction from the chemo. You can, but a lot of times those are necrotic tumors. And to do that, there's no doubt it can be difficult. But uh, in the largest series that we have, there was no uh, mortality in those patients. And, we're, and there was a 26 to 30% major uh, morbidity and complication rates in patients who were operated up front uh, with tumors that extended beyond the infrahepatic cava, inferior the hepatic veins, and the atrium. Uh, there still was need for bypass, but the, the complication rates tended to be lower. There's no doubt about that. Peter, can you 
tell me in, in more detail, if I'm going in and I have a known tumor thrombus up to still below the liver, I go in, I do my mobilization of the kidney. Talk to me in more detail about technically the step of taking out that, that tumor thrombus. What I do is I approach it, I say, I, I know I'm going in there. I will try and, without doing too much to the primary kidney, if I'm not 100% sure I can get it out, mobilize the bowel off, do whatever maneuver I need to do to expose the cava. And then I will use intraoperative ultrasound to make sure I know how high this tumor thrombus goes. And then I, I'm asking myself, well, can I partially occlude the cava or do I have to totally occlude the cava to get this out? And if my if I say my first decision is, boy, this actually goes up much higher than it looked like on imaging, then I will you know back out and biopsy. Or, hey, you know what? It really only extends slightly into the inferior vena cava. I can get a, a clamp on it. I can do a resection of the inferior vena the cava and then repair that, a partial of that, and I get all the tumor out, that's great. You know, I'll just take it all out and block. If if it's filling the cava to do that, uh, you know, that is, so it's harder, then I'll make sure I get use good vascular principles. I will then mobilize the whole kidney. I will then tie the renal artery and make sure that really the, the, the whole kidney is based on the, and the thrombus is based on uh, on that, and then I will occlude the cava. I will I do an anterior venotomy and pull the tumor out. Now, does it always come out in one piece? Uh, no, but a lot of times it does. Sometimes you have to do an extensive anterior venotomy to really just make sure you get it all. Those are not common because if it really does occlude the whole cava, often you get clot that goes all the way up and these kids present an extremis. So, Todd, I, I've read 6,000 operative notes, okay? <laughs> uh, the amount of time that somebody actually had it go all the way up there uh, like that and stop at the infrapatic cava. I don't even recall reading a case where that happened. There is what people say you're supposed to do, and then there's the reality. And, you know, after reading 6,000 and not seeing that, I'm not sure that some of these things that are described from historically actually occurred, okay? And I don't know what yours and Avi's experience has been, but, you know, when it really fills it up, it tends to go up. And in some of those situations after treating it, the cava there's collaterals. Three months ago, I had to take out a, a kid and they had, they had all collaterals. And the easiest thing I did, I just took out the whole cava because mm. he wasn't using it. And it then got a margin just proximal to where all the hepatic veins came in. And that's not the first time that that's happened because you, and it turned out there was no tumor in there. It was just, uh, it had just been not used. So it had clotted up. Let's, can we go over briefly some of the different pathologic results you may get and, and how you treat those? Sure. The first thing the pathologist looks for is in, in North America is they want to find out whether there is what's favorable histology. And there's the favorable histology has epithelial components, stromal components, and mesenchymal components. So they're glomerular, they're, and the, the amount of stroma, and it's called a triphasic tumor. Those are the classic features of Wilms tumor. Excuse me. There's blastemal component, stromal component, and epithelial component, and they, most of them have some degree of of all three. Some just have two components, and they're all considered favorable. And in the children's oncology group protocols, the amount of blastema has never correlated with outcome. Alternatively, the treatment strategy used by 
the PSYOP group, if you have predominantly blastemo after preoperative chemotherapy, that is considered to be a negative uh, prognostic factor. It doesn't seem to play a role uh, in the primary nephrectomy uh, chemotherapy patients. If the tumor pathology is favorable histology, then the next decision is what stage is it? Is the lymph nodes positive? Is it stage one or stage two? And that's considered the abdominal staging. And then finally, uh, look for lung metastasis. If it's negative and it's stage two, they are then, there's well-described, well-tested standard treatment that includes chemotherapy, what's called two-drug chemotherapy, which is vincristin and dactinomycin. And uh, it's usually about 19 weeks of therapy. If it turns out that it's stage three, then they add doxyrubicin. The regimen's called DD4A, and that regimen is for 25 weeks. If it's favorable histology, or any of them, they'll do a secondary test looking for the presence or absence of of loss of heterozygosity. And loss of heterozygosity is when you lose certain genetic material on certain chromosomes. And this has been noted in cancers of a variety of cancers. And particularly for renal tumors, 1P, 16Q, and 11P, uh, chromosomes that were had loss of heterozygosity associated with it. And it turned out that in our treatment paradigm, if you have both loss of 1P and 16Q, that your outcomes, regardless of stage, were significantly worse. And on the most recent children's oncology group studies, we did loss of heterozygosity testing. And if it turned out that you had both of them, which is between 5 and about 7% of the patients, your treatment was increased. So if you were stage 1 and 2, where you would normally get vincristin and dactinomycin 2 drug therapy, um, you would add a second drug because the patients who were stage 1 or stage 2 who had loss of heterozygosity at 1P and 16Q had about a 10% less overall survival than patients who didn't have it. For stage three and stage four, it was significantly more. It was about 18%. And those patients, if they were stage three or stage four, uh, they got what's called regimen M, which was five drugs uh, for chemotherapy. Now, you asked about the, the other thing. The other yeah. thing about pathology, once the, if it's not favorable, then it falls into a classification of unfavorable histology. And unfavorable histology is broken into two groups with the pathology determines whether they have what's called diffuse anaplastic plastic or focal anaplastic. And uh, the pathology, if it's the number of high-powered fields, you see anaplasia. I think it may be 20, but I'm not sure. So diffuse, if the patient has focal anaplasia or diffuse, there are different treatments depending on that, whether they have those features. Uh, they, they go from just having three-drug chemotherapy all the way up to five-drug chemotherapy, plus or minus radiation therapy if they need it. What other surprises we might get when looking at, we talked about these, alluded to these earlier, that it may not have even been Wilms tumor. Right. Yes. So the other things that you, the second most common tumor in children that we will come across is a renal cell carcinoma, which we don't have really good 
therapy for, well, we actually don't have any good therapy for, particularly for metastatic disease. But then we also have two other renal tumors that are, were originally thought to be variants of Wilms tumor, but are really distinct entities. One is called clear cell sarcoma of the kidney, which we have pretty reasonable treatment for, particularly for the low stages. And then rhabdoid tumors, which we really have failed to treat very well. We, the only outcomes that we have reasonable outcomes are stage one, but beyond that, uh, and most of them present at stage three or stage four, the rhabdoid tumors, the outcomes are terrible. So I want to talk about the bilateral Wilms. So uh, what is the treatment plan for a patient with bilateral Wilms tumor? So bilateral Wilms tumors, around 8 to 10% of all children who present with Wilms tumors. And as opposed to unilateral tumors where you want it and you take out the whole kidney, uh, bilateral Wilms tumors, you don't want to force the child to go undergo dialysis because you took out both the kidneys. So the strategy is to treat them up front with chemotherapy in order to try and shrink the tumors enough so that at least one of them could undergo a partial nephrectomy or hopefully two can undergo a partial nephrectomy. Bilateral Wilms tumors had never, until recently, really been formally studied. There was a number of different treatments that people had reported. They were all different. Some of them, they treated these patients for 50 or 60 months of chemotherapy without really any effect. Other times where they operated up front and the outcomes, when you look at the overall outcomes in patients with bilateral Wilms tumors, they're significantly poorer events free and overall survival. For example, the event-free and overall survival for unilateral Wilms tumors, if you took all comers, was about 88% uh, event-free survival and 95% overall survival, whereas uh, event-free survival for patients on NWTS5 with bilateral Wilms tumor was 61%, and overall survival was only 80%. And so we've recently, and it's been recently closed, did a study to look at that to, to try and fix those things. And the strategy that we used was using an induction regimen of chemotherapy called VAD, which include different doses of vincristin, adriamycin, and doxyrubicin, and then doing evaluations, uh, cross-sectional imaging at 6 and 12 weeks. And the reason those were chosen were based on prior studies, which shows that the maximum response of most children with Wilms tumor is 12 weeks, and the early response in most cases will predict late response. So after six weeks, which is two doses of the chemotherapy, if you were going to have response, you would get it. And then we use response-based criteria depending on whether can you do the partial nephrectomies. If they didn't respond, you should biopsy both kidneys and look for features that either say this isn't a uh, your typical Wilms tumor or this is a it's already differentiated, it's not going to respond, and then move on. And if they did respond, then give another uh, 12 weeks and then go on to do your definitive surgery. Is there ever a rule for biopsy in any of these patients? There's not a hard and fast rule. When you look at children who present in the typical age under you know uh, 36 months with bilateral renal tumors, it, it is almost universally Wilms tumor. And the purpose of a biopsy in children with uh, Wilms tumor is to determine whether you have unfavorable histology or 
favorable histology. And when you look at the data on, on biopsying, open, doing open biopsies to determine that, it's not very accurate initially. So based on that fact and on the, the long history of not biopsying from the PSYOP group, plus the improved imaging, we did not recommend or mandate that a patient to get on this study with Wilms tumor had to have a biopsy to start. And there were 250 patients who were enrolled, and one patient who met the criteria to be enrolled turned out to have a rhabdoid tumor. Now, the interesting thing about that patient was that the le there was one big lesion and then a lesion of two centimeters on the other side. The lesion in two centimeters went away and the patient turned out to have rhabdoid. There was also one report of bilateral clear cell sarcoma from Asia during the course of this study, but the rest of them who uh, fit the recommendations of not biopsying all had uh, Wilms tumor uh, diagnosed. If a patient presents with bilateral renal tumors and is older patients such as you know, eight, nine, or 10, or has a syndrome, such as von Hippel-Lindau, where they may likely end up having uh, renal cell carcinoma or it's a typical uh, feature, then in those cases, we have recommended biopsy. I think there's a very important role for it. Uh, there's no negative to do, but if you're going to biopsy, you should biopsy both kidneys because there's a discordant pathology in up to about 20% of patients to do that. But the initial chemotherapy that we used was not going to be different based on the pathology in the first six weeks. Would a biopsy in that situation uh, mandate uh, postoperative radiation? For this study, we did not do that, to do that because we did not want to commit people to biopsying and then having to do radiation therapy. We're going to look at that as to whether the patient's who were biopsied had any impact on it because there is some controversy in general uh, surrounding uh, some biopsy work when you're giving prenephrectomy chemotherapy, but we did not mandate that. And in, and in reality, the, the vast majority who enrolled, enrolled without a biopsy. Well, Peter, this is certainly a very uh, difficult topic to try to tackle in a short period of time. This is, as I said before, something that many of us don't have uh, near the amount of information that you do about this. So this has been very enlightening for us, and I'm sure it will be to everyone listening to this. I uh, I want to thank you for taking a lot of time out of your day to enlighten us, and we may have to do part two because there's so much to discuss with this. So, so Peter, thank you very much for taking the time, and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Todd, and thanks, Avi, and all the best to everybody. Okay? Thank, you. thank you. All right. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Stay Current in Pediatric Surgery. You can listen, watch, or read all content by downloading the Stay Current in Surgery app. Please send questions or comments to us at staycurrentpodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time.